This is the Becoming Educated podcast with me, Darren Leslie. I've been a teacher in Scotland for over eight years and I've loved every single minute of it. My mission in this podcast is to inform, challenge and inspire you to teach with joy. Hello and welcome back to the Becoming Educated podcast with me, Darren Leslie. I'd like to thank you so much for listening, whether you're walking the dog, doing the hoovering, cleaning the house, or just sitting back and relaxing and looking forward to the show today. I thank you very much. This is a re-release of my interview with David Cameron. I previously released it as two parts, but I felt that his message was so good throughout the interview that I've released it as one big interview. I'd also like to take this opportunity to also promote the STEP conference, which will be on the 21st of March at Stirling Court Hotel. The Scottish Teachers for Enhancing Practice have David Cameron chairing their conference with a keynote from the outstanding Howell Roberts and also some excellent presentations going on throughout the day. The cost of the conference is £50 and you can sign up on their website at www www.steachersep.org.uk I really look forward to seeing you there and if you want to hear more from David I'm sure you will not be disappointed on the day. So without further to do I would like to introduce David again and I hope you enjoy what he has to say. Um, today I'm joined by a man who has done and seen it all in Scottish education. A former teacher until the early 90s, he has been the Director of Children's Services for Stirling Council, Head of Education in East Lothian, and Area Manager for a large group of schools in Fife, among many other roles. He is now a speaker, trainer, mentor, coach and advisor who has delivered at conferences as far afield as TEDx Buenos Aires, David Cameron. David, is it a privilege to have you on the Becoming Educated <laughs> podcast? Okay, and it's a privilege to be here. Um, just, to, just to kick us off, uh, could you share a little bit about you uh, and your career today? Sure, I think you've pretty much covered it all. Um, there's an alternative version, of course, from my good friend Chris Kilkenny, who once told me that he knew what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. And I said, what's that? He said, Davey, I want to do the same as you. I want to talk shite for money. So that's the alternative version. Um, I guess, as you say, I've pretty much done everything. I've been involved in a lot of national activity. I was involved in the Outdoor Education uh, Report, Learning Connections, did that. I was involved with uh, We Can and Must Do Better. But, yeah, basically I'm just a kind of teacher who stumbled into other areas of work <laughs> and finished up doing radio interviews for podcasts. That's pretty much the story, I think. Brilliant, that sounds brilliant. Um, so we'll just get a crack on. I've got a couple of questions, obviously, sure. we're going to focus today on, on Scottish education and, and kind of the narrative around that. Um, so just to start us off, what is the, the one thing that, that you would like to see change in our education system? In some senses, it's, it's not that I want to see things change. Um, my view very strongly is that the, the key to everything is around consistency. 
And my view is, and always has been, that if young people were experiencing the best teaching, um, the best support that already exists in most of our schools, we wouldn't be talking about systems change. And I think that a lot of what's happening in classrooms right across the country is creating the kind of children, if you like, that Curriculum for Excellence sets out with the four capacities. Um, and I think that's been the case for some time. I think um, that, that good, caring people who've got a good understanding of their role are doing exceptional work consistently with young people. Um, and sometimes I think the things that we do, either as a nation, politically or whatever, disrupt that rather than necessarily complement it. So if I was looking for a change, it would be to focus on how we raise that level of consistency across the board. Um, and I think, well, curricular change and other big and significant changes can, can, if you like, support that improvement. They won't create that improvement. And, and so I'm less concerned in some senses around that than I am about that focus on the experience of the learner and looking at how we can better develop that guarantee, if you like, that in every classroom and in every other learning context that young people will have a chance of getting a better deal than they started off with in their lives. Mm. Just to go, go back a little bit, you mentioned consistency there. What do you mean in terms of consistency? Consistency with what in terms of our learning and teaching, in terms of our relationships with young people, in terms of our... I think all of that. Um, I mean, I think I think these areas that you mentioned are, are all closely connected. Um, I, you know, there are lots of recipes around, particularly now, uh, for what constitutes high-quality teaching and learning. My view would be that if the relationships aren't there with young people, then these techniques on their own won't save you. There's some really interesting work being done by a guy called Ian Mentor, um, who works in England. And Ian Mentor talks about teacher stance, and he argues that particularly in England, what we're getting very good at is creating the technician-teacher it's somebody who can follow a script, who can perform according to a set of instructions or a menu or whatever, but isn't necessarily a reflective teacher, isn't necessarily somebody that can think about what's happening in the classroom, adapt what they're doing to that, respond to the needs of children and young people in changing situations. So in some senses, although there might be a recipe for what might look like good quality teaching and learning if it's not supported by the kind of relationships that characterize the best classrooms then i don't think it works so it's around all of that um i, I don't think there's one particular way of being a good teacher either uh, so i'm not looking for consistency in terms of style i guess in answer to your question it would be consistency around engagement ambition, aspirations, and the willingness to engage with young people, to respond to what they, they, they need, 
um, to have a good understanding, obviously, of what you're teaching. I mean, I do think that subject knowledge in the secondary, a general knowledge of subject in primary, I think all of these things are essential. But it's that it's, it's around that combination of things that I think we need the, the level of consistency to increase. Absolutely. So thinking about our education system then, what are the strengths and, and where, where are we really strong in? I think in Scotland, there's always been a real strength in people using their own experience, if you like. I, mean, I think it's interesting that Scotland in, in lots of ways hasn't gone through the kind of real swings that have characterised education elsewhere. Um, so in, in early years, for example, at one stage, you would have an emphasis in phonics, kids would have a word in but you would also alongside that have emergent writing, you would have use of real books, you would have all of these things coming together and teachers being willing to kind of try things that were being described as good practice, but adhering to things that they knew from their experience worked. And that kind of pragmatism, I think, has been a real strength. I think that's stopped us in many ways um, swinging too far and moving to extremes in Scottish education. I think there's been, there's a real strength, if you like, of people being engaged. Scotland, I think, is different in some senses. I, I do think there's a greater sense of community than there is in England, for example. I think there's probably a greater sense amongst teachers of dealing with youngsters coming from similar backgrounds to themselves. I think there's a lot around that, that that's been a real strength in Scottish education and the quality of the banter is pretty high as well which I, think, I think that's important yeah, if I think some of my young people this morning would, would, <laughs> would probably argue with some of my banter so, but I think with others definitely um, so in terms of of Scotland and our education you've been involved in the Cooking for Excellence since the very beginning Yeah. do you think it's achieving its goals? no, no I don't and and um, I think, I mean, curriculum for excellence is, is interesting for me. Um, I think there's lots of good intent. I think there are lots of things that we got wrong. Um, I, I mean, clearly, I think if you're going to make meaningful change in education, then you can't just change one element in it. The analogy I use a lot is that if you, you know, if you want the marionette to dance, you need to use all the strings. If you just pull one string, it just jerks. And in a sense, we missed the opportunity in Curriculum for Excellence. So we made changes in the curriculum um, and we kind of encouraged changes in pedagogy, pedagogy rather a bit, but we, we didn't necessarily make that central. Um, we got caught up in the generation of stuff, you know, 18 million experiences and outcomes soon to be supplemented by several thousand benchmarks because clearly there was a lot of room in people's heads once they'd accommodated the 18 million experiences and outcomes to squeeze in a, a few thousand benchmarks. And folk were demonstrating for that at Victoria Key. You know, what do we want? Benchmarks. When do we want them now? And we got caught up in the generation of that. Um, we didn't really, in a sense, successfully address the IT issues around that. So we had GLOW, 
which at one stage was a George Lucas award-winning initiative with some of the leading uh, people associated with that out at the Star Wars ranch, you know, presumably consorting with R2-D2 and Luke Skywalker and whatever else. But then somehow or other, that kind of lost its way as well. And and I think we're, we haven't really got a coherent strategy around IT. Um, I think turning away from the McCormick report, I'm not arguing that the McCormick report in teachers' terms and conditions was the right answer, but I think that it's unreasonable to expect teachers to engage with a curriculum where they've got more autonomy and more control if we don't actually look at their conditions. Um, and I think clearly what we were looking for were, were more reflective teachers. But we kind of never really presented as it such. It just always felt a bit like asking more in terms of workload and contribution. And we never really got the cultural change right around curriculum for excellence. And so what we're seeing just now is we're seeing this, I think, bizarre cocktail where if you go into some schools, it's barely recognisable as curriculum for excellence. Sure, there are new nationals, there have been revisions to higher, but, you know, it's pretty much it's still S1, S2, S3, S4, S5, S6, despite all the rhetoric we get around broad general education and senior phase and all of that. Um, I mean, the whole, I, I remember, sorry, indulgent old man talk, but I remember a classic conversation I had with several of the leading lights in Scottish education at, at that point. And we were talking about the broad general education in the senior phase. And I was saying, you know, teachers are just going to love this senior phase stuff, eh? Because if you're not delivering a broad general education in the senior phase, there'll be, there'll be no need for all that personal social health education stuff. You can you can drop that core PE. You'll no need to bother with any of that anymore. You know, all that Duke Edinburgh stuff, that can go right out the window because you've had your broad general education. And suddenly people were looking at me like I had two heads and going, <laughs> no, no, it's not like that at all. And I'm saying, all right, okay, so, so they'll still be doing all that stuff. How's that not a broad general education? And we got caught up in all of that weird sort of discussion around terminology mm -hmm. and and almost a kind of hackneyed, cliched soundbite way of talking about the curriculum without actually engaging in what that meant. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of that discussion's never really been resolved. And I think a lot of change um has been led by changes in assessment and mm -hmm. and national examinations. I mean, it's classically, again, um, people went along for years, especially in, in secondary. People went along for years going, yeah, yeah, I know, curriculum for excellence, uh, sure, I uh, fully support the, the principles of curriculum for excellence. Uh, yeah, you know, I really, really, um, I, I love it. I can't, I can't wait for more curriculum for excellence and then the exams came out and everybody kind of went oh crap is this what it is I'm not so keen now and so as soon as people saw what the reality was in terms of assessment qualification certification of it, the whole the whole nature of the discussion changed around that and it was almost as if people had been pursuing some weird chimerical dream of what curriculum for excellence might look like and suddenly, when they saw what it had been translated into, particularly by SQA, 
they're suddenly going no and and i think we're still living mm-hmm. with the consequences of that kind of dichotomy absolutely well there's still the, the issues around national forum i mean i've been a teacher involved in education now for coming up to eight years and I think almost every year in my first six years, there was a different qualification. Yeah. And I've only been doing it for a short time. But thinking about since the inception, do you think we, we, we've we stumbled along because maybe we, we pushed the curriculum on teachers who want autonomy, but would actually forgot to train the teachers to <laughs> get the teachers up to scratch? Or do you think we've done it? We've... Well, I, th- I think it's interesting. I think there's a combination of things. I mean, I think the reality is that some teachers like autonomy. And some teachers like the idea of it, but they don't like the reality, you know. And and it is that classic thing of what. So what I've got to design my own curriculum as well, you know. So for loads of people, it's just would you tell me what to do? Um, I and having to think about what you're doing, having to be that kind of autonomous professional, puts a lot of pressure on people if they're not ready for that. And I don't think we've done enough, um, on the one hand, to make that change culturally. On the other hand, folk are still really, really struggling because at the end of the day, they'll be judged by literacy standards, numeracy standards, exam results, you know, all of that stuff. So people will get to the stage where they're going, right, okay, well, yeah, I'll, I'm happy to do curriculum, but actually now we're getting closer to the exam. I'm going to do revision. I'm going to do exam technique. I'm going to go over in a very kind of traditional reinforcing way because that's where I feel safest in mm-hmm. terms of guaranteeing outcomes for children and young people. And ultimately they see that as their main responsibility. And that makes it difficult for people to feel autonomous uh-huh. if they're having to chase success in an exam that they don't they don't say in the cold light of day yeah. at the end of the day with results is what we're talking about I can think about my own teaching when it's been right team but it's batting down the hatches he's down thumbs up let's yeah let's get to it whereas we should maybe if the if we got it right in terms of autonomy in terms of teachers being being ready for that and being safe and secure in a curriculum that they know the school across the road are doing the same and the school 20 miles away are doing the same. I think that's been the, been an issue. Yeah, I think, I mean, interestingly, and I don't want to overplay any of the questions, Dan, but one of the things that I argued for strongly um, initially in Curriculum for Excellence is that we should have put out pilot exams. And I know this is about to make me sound like Methuselah, but when we did the, particularly when we did the first phase of standard grade, we put out pilot exams so people could see what the assessment looked like and that seemed to really crystallise their view. It made people feel safe that they weren't going to be caught out by an exam. Mm -hmm. And for loads of secondary teachers, um, the the syllabus, the exam syllabus, is the curriculum. Um, And it's unteachable normally. Right, so most courses have got so much stuff built into them, you can't teach them anyway. Um, so you're even going beyond the syllabus, and the curriculum becomes the past papers, and your best prediction of what's likely to come up. So, you know, to go right to the end of the road in terms of saying you can do what you like, and now here's the exam that always seemed to be a mistake. We should have had. 
the chance to look and see what assessment might look like and I've had the opportunity to consult around that and get that right because teachers are not generally going to knock their pan in technical expression but they're not generally going to knock their pan in to make sure that young people are brilliant analysts and evaluators and everything else if there's not going to be a reward for that in the final assessment mm -hmm. absolutely no i totally agree and um, moving on now in early in 2019 a refreshed narrative for curriculum for excellence was released what has this achieved <laughs> well i i I, I know a number of people um, have been really enthusiastic about, about refreshing the narrative. Um, I tend to refer to it as the slides that will save us all. And, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know if anybody has actually read it, but I wrote an article for Times Ed, which was in the form of a letter to an agony aunt. And essentially what it was saying was, you know, my relationship's gone wrong. Uh, a relationship it all started off brightly we both believed in the future together we thought we had a way forward and and then we thought we didn't have enough clarity so so we started listing out the experiences and outcomes we'd likely to have in our relationship and it kind of went on in this vein and then said you know do you think it'll be enough if i tell my partner the story of our relationship in a different way because that's what refreshing the narrative mm -hmm. sounded like not about not about changing the narrative, not about dealing with the reality we're currently in, but let's just tell the story differently and see where we finish up, which seemed almost Trumpian. You know, that, that seemed like something out the the Trump playbook. Um, yeah, it, it only looks like a mess, but actually if we go back and we tell the story differently, it'll all sound fine. And I just did this vision of teachers across the line going, Oh, that was how it was supposed to be. Oh, oh no, that's fine. Oh, no, honestly, honestly, National Force, fine. You know, I don't care whether it's six options or eight options. Now that my narrative has been refreshed, I'm totally cool with that. And it was kind of like, I mean, the, the equivalent for me was what I always refer to as the Bob Marley School of Curriculum Development, i.e. the world will look better if you have a spliff. And it was kind of like refreshing the narrative was a kind of collective national spliff that everybody would somehow or other inhale and then everything would look better but if the reality is that teachers are uncomfortable with the demands that are being made in the assessment if they feel harried and harassed and overworked if they feel there's a lack of clarity then we actually need to address the real problems that they're facing and not just tell them a different story so for me, it's had no effect. But if it's made some folk feel better, and I mean, currently in Scottish education, everybody loves an infographic. So in a circle, a circle, <laughs> anytime or a graph with no scale. That's another of my favourites. So you know, if if there's a problem, let's come up with an infographic that makes it look better. But you actually do need to tackle the problems that mm -hmm. people face and deal with them practically and pragmatically. And that's where refreshing the narrative is not making a difference. Absolutely. I'm going to pick up a few things you said there and, and something that, that I've heard you say before. Um, kind of thinking about teacher workload. I mean, teachers work hard. I mean, we do put a shift in for the young people in, in our care and, we, and we, we're in the job because we care passionately about mm about their outcomes and, and you kind of linking back earlier you know we're, we're batting down the hatches and getting them getting them doing the hard graft because we want them to have the outcomes 
Um, what are your thoughts on, on teachers' workload and kind of how hard they work just now? Yeah, I mean, I think basically I, I don't see many folk that don't look knackered a lot of the time. And, and you know, I do accept that we can't romanticise the teaching profession. Um, and there are folk who are in teaching because they love geography. Kids, they can take or leave. Um, <laughs> you know, or, or they... It, it's a good way of continuing with with physics, which was something that they've always been fascinated by and engaged with. So there are teachers around that aren't messianic in the way that some are, but whether they are or not, I reckon they're all working pretty hard. And, you know, all you need to do is go into a pub at, at the end of the Christmas term and you'll see broken and hysterical people drowning their sorrows and copious quantities of alcohol or whatever because they're crashing it's a hard shift and one of the things i often talk about with teachers is i'll say you know put your hand up if you've been ill during the holidays and i don't just mean the last holidays that people have been through i just mean generally and it's remarkable how many times people put their hands up and it's that phenomenon sebastian Coe used to talk about it in athletics that he rarely got ill during training or competition, but very often got ill after a competition. And there's a lot of that with teachers gearing themselves up, making their way through to the end of term and then just collapsing. Um, so I, I, I do think the workload issues are genuine. And I think a lot of the time, the kind of strategies and approaches that we've taken to addressing that are patronising. You know, so, I mean, people will put out lists of you know don't do this and do do that and you're thinking actually that's not really what it's about what teachers need i think is they need some clarity around what the direction is um both in terms of expectations and demands i think they particularly need it in terms of national assessment you know teachers need to feel comfortable that they're covering the curriculum that children will require to be successful in their courses. So I think some real clarity around that. I think there needs to be absolute clarity that what we're asking teachers to develop and deliver with children will be rewarded. And I'm not arguing that necessarily everything needs to be assessed or there needs to be a qualification for everything. But what I am suggesting that if knowledge and understanding is the only game in town, then people will be devoting themselves to that and they will be trying to cram in the other stuff as well. You know, the well-being, the personal development, all of that kind of stuff. We need much more clarity around that. Much, we need a much closer relationship between what we assess for certification and what we ask for in terms of teaching and learning. We need to get that absolutely clarified. And we need to start addressing really simple things. And, and you've probably heard me talk about this before as well, but <clears throat> we need to start identifying what the breakable plates are. Um, too many conversations, I say this all the time, in schools about what more, what new, what different. Too few conversations about what less and what stops. And if we don't have the second set of conversations, ruthlessly, anyway, if I, for me, just, you know, classically, in preparation for tonight, I thought I'd better do some, some homework. Um, <laughs> so I looked at the Curriculum for Excellence website, 
and it, it makes very clear that it's based on the experiences and outcomes and the benchmarks. That's nuts. That's just nuts. The point of bringing in the benchmarks should have been to replace at least some of the experiences and outcomes. Because the sheer volume of experiences and outcomes, if you're, for the sake of argument, a, a primary teacher, all of these experiences and outcomes are relevant. How do you internalise these for the purposes of assessment? How do you get that sheer volume of information into your head? You know, if you're a, a secondary chemistry teacher, you should not only be absolutely fluent in the experiences and outcomes for, for all stages in your subject, but also for literacy, numeracy, and health and well-being, because you've obviously got a responsibility for that. Presumably it wouldn't do you any harm if you knew about some of the other ones as well. And you can't actually internalise all of that information, all the stuff that's in this, these big green folders. So to come in with literally hundreds of new benchmarks that people have got to add into that mix and then turn around and say to people, but we are concerned about teacher workload. That's just nuts. You know, there's, there's not really any other description for it. The whole point in bringing in new benchmarks should have been to streamline and offer clarity, not to offer additionality. And, and as long as we do stuff like that, then we're, we're never going to come to terms with it. And if I may just indulge myself, I mean, classically, a few years ago, I did a piece of work with a guy called Keir Bloomer, where we argued that the building the curriculum documents, the original suite of building the curriculum documents, were too big. And at that point, there was a real tension with Curriculum for Excellence because we spent half our time saying it's really just encapsulating good practice. And then we spent the other half of our time saying it's the most radical change in Scottish education since the Battle of Annaburn in 1314, you know, or whatever. And these two things couldn't be true. You know, they couldn't both be true. It was one or the other. And we're saying, if you have five really fairly substantial documents as a building the curriculum suite, that looks like a radical change. It doesn't look like an endorsement of good practice. So we argued that what we should do is reduce them. And we managed to get Scottish government to agree um, and we started doing the work on it. But they gave us a, a panel to kind of look after us. Uh, and the panel spent most of their time putting back in all the stuff that we'd taken out. So we had one of the building curriculum documents down to 800 words. Um, and then it went to the panel. <laughs> it went back up to the... <laughs> and, and they started putting it... Because they'd written this, you know, they'd written the first bit. And that's the bit that people will not give up. Mm -hmm. and let stuff go and until we're at the stage where we're prepared to say right you know a thousand words is enough mm. i think because too many words i mean how, how many times do you go into senior leaders offices and you see the folders oh at, yeah at the top and you take them out and you've got to get off the dust yeah but absolutely. You're, you're right in saying there's just there's i could I, I can tell you all the health and well-being experience and outcomes. Never mind the literacy ones and the numeracy ones and that's being totally honest yeah, I, yeah. I go into my work well, and i, and I, I had try a, and I had a brilliant experience. I was doing a, I did an in-service 
um, for two secondary schools um, around the, around about the time of the experiences and outcomes when they were out. And so there's about like, 300 teachers or something in the room. And I said to them, put your hands up, any of you who've read your way through the folder of experiences and outcomes. And two people put their hands up. And I said to them, well, well done, you two. That's absolutely brilliant. And one guy went, I cried throughout. Does that still count? <laughs> and, and I thought, you know, he had a point because to read through that whole folder would have been an absolutely soul-destroying exercise. You know, just, can I mean, can you imagine it? <laughs> I mean, the, the national, I mean, it's the same thing we do all the time. I keep saying to people, uh, put your hand up if you've read the creative learning plan. And again, my records too, I've had, you know, the, the most in any one group, two folk have read it. Small comfort to me, I wrote part of it. Um, and so there are plans out there and nobody reads. That's the reality. Generally, what people try and do is they absorb all that stuff by Moses. You know, they hope that if they <laughs> work with it or teach you often enough, somehow or other it'll kind of get in their system and get in their head. But we just churn all that stuff out. Mm -hmm. And the reality is we need to keep things much simpler, much more focused, and we need to recognise the realities that people are dealing with. Absolutely. So kind of talking about what you talked about earlier, I mean, so many staff do run an empty to thing. We have to have to be mindful. I mean, I've, my, my goodly up the stairs works way longer hours than I do, and, and she puts in an absolute shift. But a lot of teachers that suffer from mental health issues, stress, I mean, you can go to any school in the country and they'll be, they'll, they can point in the direction of someone mm. who's been off with stress and it's not why, they, they, when they started the profession, they probably never thought of, they would ever be signed off with stress. But how do we actually combat that? What do we actually do to help teachers so that when they get up to work, get up to work they're energised, when they leave the building, they're energised for their families? Okay, I think, I mean, one of the things we, we need to stop doing is what we do a lot which is we treat the symptoms and we don't treat the disease so you know i think lots of the stuff around mindfulness and all of that i think that's helpful i think it's a really really useful palliative but it's not a cure and i was just i i was saying at the clark manning event you know that if you're doing breathing and you're doing and out and if at the end of that, you've still got exactly the same causative problems that you had when you started, you're going to have to breathe a flipping lot more, <laughs> really, aren't you? You know, before that goes away. So let's stop dealing with the palliatives and actually tackle what the real problems are. And as I was trying to suggest earlier, I think much greater clarity and consistency around what we're asking for in terms of teaching and learning. I think what we need to do is we, we need to recognise that the, for me anyway, the key antidote to stress is job satisfaction. So it's about trying to make it possible for people to see achievement. It's about not setting unreasonable targets for people. It's about trying to get people to recognise the progress that they make. And one of the things, apologies again, that I talk about all the time is that we need to be much more positive in the approach that we take to evaluation. And I again, repeating myself, but the first question in evaluation, whether at school, department or personal level, should always be, what, what are we doing right? What am I doing right? 
So we try and find out what the strengths are and we try and build on them. And one of the heads that I worked with recently, um, I said to her, what are you doing for your school improvement plan? She said, well, I've just told all the staff to pick something they're good at and tell me how they're going to develop that further in the coming year. And I was, that's it. And she went, yep. And I said, how's that working out for you? It's brilliant. I'm getting collateral improvement. I'd never heard anybody talk about collateral improvement. I'd heard them talk about collateral damage. And I said, collateral improvement? She said, yeah. She said, they feel valued. They feel respected. They feel appreciated. They feel they're getting to focus on things that they like. And actually, the energy increase has, mean, has meant that they're improving in all sorts of areas. Now, again, I'm not arguing that it's as simple as that, but I think there's a really fairly profound lesson in that, that the culture that we've got at the moment is find out what you're crap at and focus on it. And so we drive people into that focus on areas of deficit and weakness without encouraging them to say, well, what is it that you're going to bring to that that's going to be the basis for your development? What are your strengths? Um, and, and we need, I think, to get much more into that kind of culture. So clarity around workload, reduction where possible. You know, we need to start cutting. I mean, you know, it, it is a bit, even refreshing the narrative um, is a classic example in that you're throwing a new set of slides into the mix. And it might be a better set of slides, might be a fabulous set of slides. It might not actually be the Finnegan's weakest slides, you know, it, it might be the Ladybird book of slides, I don't know. But it's just something else for folk to look at. We need to stop doing that. <laughs> you know, uh, you've got too much stuff on here, something else. You know, and if we could get a break in that kind of culture. And if, I mean, the other, I suppose, more general point, if I may, is that People talk about evidence, informed practice, and all of that. And whether you look at the Education Endowment Fund work, whether you look at John Hattie's work, um, whether you look at Michael Barber's work, a whole range of people's work that you can look at in terms of research. And what it'll tell you consistently is that changes in outcomes happen for children when they're together with adults who work with them as educators. And so the practice is at the core of it. And yet, despite having that clarity around that, what we do instead is we focus on stuff. So, you know, we give people more stuff. And, and I think, you know, if looking back to when I was a kid, loads of youngsters got a pretty good education out of the old old grade if they're a good teacher. You know, uh, only 30% of them got to do the old grade, <laughs> and that wasn't quite what we were looking for. But the same thing in standard grade, I think, that loads of well-educated people came out of Scottish schools with a real bread, depending what their experience had been of the teachers, teaching assistants, and other people in the school who worked with them depending on the trips that they got to go on, depending on whether they got a broader education, total curriculum or whatever. And and they weren't damaged. You know, loads of people were denied opportunities in the old system, but they weren't 
damaged in, in a sense by an inadequate curriculum if they had good educators that that mediated that for them brilliant i love i love that um so thinking about teachers then i've got kind of got two more questions before we we kind of finish up with the final three um what one thing would you would you encourage teachers to to learn more about so that they can get the clarity they can get the confidence to that if they're just a good teacher the children will get the outcomes they desire yeah i think I, i mean i suppose the first thing is that people are coming into education in Scotland with a pretty good background. Um, apart from, you know, PGDE, uh, most people have got years of teacher training and teacher development. And I know that there will be people who are critical of that and all the rest of it. In general, people come into teaching in Scotland pretty well prepared. Um, I think if, they're, if they are pretty well prepared and if they have a disposition towards liking and working with children, which is something that I think we may come back to in the questions. But if they've got that disposition, I think they're off to a good start. What I, I think is really important is reflection. I think trying to get teachers to engage with their own practice, to think about it, to talk about it. I'm, as loads of people know, I'm a massive fan of pedagogy. Uh, I'm a massive fan of the idea of teach meets and teachers coming together to discuss their practice and I mean I make a living out of it but the reality is the answers come from the choir not from the soloists um you know it, it, it it's teachers talking together being willing to engage being able to to open up their practice and if people can do that with a sense of possibility I mean one of my favorite stories just now is is working with a group of staff from Moor House who all had different jobs <clears throat> and I'd said to them you know it'd help if you could describe your job for everybody what you think you do and one of them said my job is the recalibration of hope and I quote that all the time you know that sense of I change what children believe they can do um, and if we can get these dispositions and give people the time and the focus and build that, if you like, that culture of reflection. For me, that's that's really the key step. Brilliant. So can I go and back tell about the, the breakable plates idea yeah. you mentioned? What should teachers and of course school leaders what, what should we be doing less of? <laughs> um I, I that'll vary uh, from time to time. Um I, I one of my favourite tools at the moment is I have a, it's a dead straightforward graph which has got time and effort on one axis and impact on the other. And I encourage people to pick an area, could be assessment, it could be around behaviour and discipline, it could be around anything that they want it to be, it's whatever their concerns are. And then the simple exercise is write down in post-its the things you do in that area and then agree where the post-its go in that graph. And what that does is that gives you a map of workload. And the things that are well up on the impact access, in my terminology, these are the things that matter. And the things that are high up in the time and effort access, these are the breakable plates. And it varies. I mean, there are loads of them. Um, I, I mean, 
planning in primary I think has probably improved that was a classic example you know teachers that were skilled competent proven to be effective over a long period of time we're still having to generate the same kind of quote forward plans unquote that they'd been generating when they first started um you know why why are we not prepared to trust teachers to to do that if what we can see is there's a consistently positive impact on the experiences and outcomes for young people um so i think there are areas around that i think assessments ripe for a really good look at um i think sometimes we we're overly formal around assessment i think there's some interesting work going on um dizzy christodoulou i'm not the biggest fan in the world of her seven myths book but she's been doing some interesting work around assessment um, I think there's some useful ways of thinking a bit differently about assessment I think sometimes we over record um, discipline and behavior I think a classic example of that you know we, we, we have people filling in forms when they should be able to say help you know mm. help I need help and the response to that could be okay I'll come and see what's going on in your room or I'll you know let's talk but instead of that we often formalize processes mm. unnecessarily perfect classic example of that you know we started off getting it right for every child and we finished up starting talking about getting it right with any form um, you know so if we could agree on yeah, um, going back to trust I, I read a great thing about you know people people put in systems because they don't trust the people whereas if we just trusted the people we wouldn't need the system yeah yeah and and there's a again there's a huge risk i think around that because some people will let you down but what we do a lot of the time is we design systems around the drowning which means that we don't enable the swimmers and John Hattie's got a phrase that I love where he talks about coalitions of success and what I understand by a lot of that is that what we should try and do is build coalitions of success so that you, you move the cultural centre of gravity towards the positive rather than what we often do is focus on failure so you know the, the people you know, incompetent teachers unpleasant teachers nasty teachers may well exist but for me very 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 much in a minority and yet we design systems around that which often hobble those people who need to spring and move forward mm -hmm. absolutely well come to the end of, of the main interview section and go on to the final three questions that i'm, I'm asking everybody and i'm going to indulging myself here with some of the questions um, but before we do that could you could you let listeners know where they could find out more about you and, and the work that you do uh, I've got a website uh, therealdavidcameron.net um, I'm about to update it for the first time this century so it might suddenly be worth reading again um, I I blog a bit on that, haven't done so for a while um, I I've done a number of podcasts like this um, so there's there's lots of links and I try and pick up on as many of them as possible um, on the 
on the website um i've got um i've, I've got great excitement because i did tedx clock manning you mentioned tedx buenos aires why on earth you speared tedx clock manning a much richer and more vibrant <laughs> experience um and uh they'll be publishing or, or putting out online of course, yes. the speeches from that. So I'm doing something of that. Enough resilience, we need more resistance is the kind of theme that I've taken. And it captures a lot of the themes that we've talked about tonight. So that's something to look out for. Absolutely. I think I was I was there there watching that and it was definitely you spoke with passion and, and shared a really great message. So I'd encourage anyone to, to, to watch oh, that. Thank you. Um, so I've got final three questions, if if I may. Sure. Okay. Um, what book or text uh, has had the biggest impact on your career? Um, I, I I suppose there's lots of non-educational things that have had a big impact on 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 me. Um, there was a great Leonard um, Leonard. I was supposed to say Leonard Cohen quote. I don't know what on earth put that into my head. Um, but there's a there's a brilliant quote from Lauren Stenhouse, which talks about teachers and, and the importance of teachers. And that had a big impact on me. Um, there's a, a, a really good set of comments from, um, from Michael Barber, where he talks about what comes out from the literature and... Um, school effectiveness and improvement research and identifies the most important of these being what happens with learners. And these things have had a huge impact. But some of the other things that have had a huge impact have been the experiences that I've had with people. I had a great principal teacher when I started teaching. Um, you know, he really woke me up to lots of things that were possible. I had the chance, to, I've had the chance to work with some brilliant people. Tim Brighouse, uh, huge hero of mine and Tim's been a brilliant influence and some of his stuff around uh, the A to Z of school improvement just nice simple straightforward text I think they've all had a big big impact on me if you could give one bit of advice to a teacher new old experience whatever what would it be I wouldn't be a refresher narrative um, I, I, I mean I think I think what people really need to do is is to engage with purpose. You know, David Hargrave's quote that purpose is not simply a target that an organisation aims to achieve, it's an organisation's reason for being, is another comment that stayed with me for a long time. And people to engage around that, what their purpose is, and to think about that, because that's what you, you have to fall back on. Um, I use a... a letter I love that the Duke of Wellington wrote in 1812 during the Napoleonic Wars and he he has he writes to his majesty's government about how he's enumerated the tents and tent poles the bridles and saddles and he's submitted reports and the character and spleen of every officer and every farthing has been accounted for with two notable exceptions uh, the sum of one and ninepence remains unaccounted for in one infantry battalion's petty cash, and there has been a hideous confusion as to the number of jars of raspberry jam issued to one cavalry regiment during a sandstorm in western Spain. This reprehensible carelessness may be due to the pressure of circumstance, since we are at war with France. 
and there's something for me really powerful about how easy it is to lose your way in ticking the boxes and counting the tents and temples and doing all of that and losing sight of what your version of driving Napoleon from Spain is, which is what Wellington's key purpose is. And I think the more people can come back to that and, and maintain a sense of perspective and to engage with others, I think, the key thing for me is engage with others, you know, whether it's staff in your own school, find the positive voices, whether it's pedagogy, whether it's getting involved with some of the really good bloggers that are around, listening to podcasts like this, just getting that sense that there are other people out there. There is life on Mars, you know. It, it might be a hot planet, <laughs> but we could make it habitable. Um, and just a, a final question, something that, that really fascinates it's me and my, my own, own research. What do you think gets in the way most of, of just great teaching? I think it's like, I would find it hard to, to determine what gets in the way most. Um, I think tiredness, you know, we've talked about that. I think, I think that gets in the way. I think pressure and distraction. I think perverse incentives. Um, you know, I think, I think we're, we've been far too good at getting people to pursue success in exams, which don't actually reward the best practice. Um, and I understand that. I understand that if you're at SQA, you're trying to design assessment, which is teacher-proof. So, you know, you're actually trying to design assessment so that kids can be taught in any way and, and they can come to that and they'll have a chance, they'll have a shot at it. That, for me, bedevils the whole system. Um, you know, when I was a teacher, um, if you were in fifth year with me, it, you better have a good time before January because after January... I'm head down and, and straight on for the exams. You know, I might throw in the odd two seconds of banter, but essentially I'm trying to make sure in that two-term dash mm -hmm. that you reach the finish line. That's a perverse incentive. Mm -hmm. I should be able to offer children, young people, an interesting, challenging, thoughtful experience. We should actually equip them to do well in the exam. But what I'm trying to do is I'm, I'm trying to narrow down what I do because, you know, it looks as if that's the best way to get them through the damn thing. So I think all of these things come together um, and come together with the stresses and pressure. And it is hard work. You know, it, it's, I mean, I, I was teaching a while back. Um, I, I was doing some work in a primary class. I tell the story all the time. And I had a really, really difficult primary two and the last morning I was in with them, everything went pretty well. There was only one major disciplinary incident and I managed to get through that. And the class teacher was kind of looking at me like I was the second coming. And I went over to him and I said, Andrew, there's something you need to remember. <coughs> he goes, what's that? And I said, I'm not coming back this afternoon. <laughs> and I can still do a good morning. Um, and I might be able to do a good day, but I don't know that I could do a good week. And doing a good term's hard and doing a good year's hard and that idea of having to there's a remorselessness about classroom teaching, which is which is really hard and really draining. Um and 
having to step up with new energy. I mean, if you're anything other than in secondary, you know, maths or an, an English teacher or whatever, you're often just getting kids coming to you for single periods. You're trying to have an impact. You're trying to make it memorable. You're trying to impart knowledge. You're trying to develop skills. You're trying to do all of that in a relatively short period of time. And then these kids will walk out the door and another load will come in. And, you know, you can imagine that even, you know, I mean, how many shows would Billy Connolly do a night even before he got old and had Parkinson's? And a teacher could be giving five, six performances a day. And, and they won't all be performances. I know there'll be group work and you pace yourself. But it's actually, there's a remorselessness to it. And I think we need to think about how we look after people and how we manage their time around that better. Definitely. I think uh, one thing that I, I read this year, last year actually, that really interests me is that Scottish teachers have the highest contact time in the developed yeah. world, and world. And if you look at teachers in Shanghai, I had a really interesting reception to Shanghai to teach hours a day and the rest of the rest of the time they develop themselves in professionals and look at the top of the yeah. top of the rankings in the different culture of course um i'd really like to take this opportunity to thank you very much for for spending time with me and and chatting through some of my some of the topics there it's been really enlightening thank uh, you and i really enjoyed it so thank you very much no it's all my pleasure thank you Well, thank you very much again for listening to that and and i just loved what david had to say there about how there's not much that we really need to change in scotland edu scottish education but what we do really need to think about is providing teachers with clarity identifying what the breakable plates are and just getting rid of them and if we do provide that clarity it will allow teachers to be free to do what they do best. And that is teach outstanding lessons to our outstanding young people in our classrooms. And I think that is a, a real great takeaway. I also love the, the anecdotes that David has around the refresh narrative. Although it has a real funny nature, he, he does have a serious message there and further backs up his point that we really need clarity in Scottish education. And that's something that he will continue to, to talk about. It's something he will talk about at the STEP conference. And it's something that I definitely want to, to pursue more of. We have so much policy and um, documents that feed into our working lives as teachers. We just need to strip that back, find the clarity we need, and focus on the thing that matters most. And that is teaching Scot Scotland's children to be the best that they possibly can be because they are our future. I'd like to thank you for listening. If you'd like to discuss it further, please feel free to contact me on Twitter at DNLeslie or by email darren at becomingeducated.co.uk. If you haven't done so already, please, please, please subscribe to the podcast, share it with a friend, and also, if you have time and you liked what you listened to, I would love it if you were to leave me a review. Until next time, please remember to teach with joy.